Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Future of Application Security. We have today Joe Basirico with us. Joe is the Senior Director of Product Security at Highspot. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Joe, before we go too far into this podcast, I know we've got a bunch of really exciting topics. I would love for the audience to just get to know you a little bit better. Do you mind giving a brief intro of what you do at Highspot and where you started your career? Maybe talk a little bit about that trajectory. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So at the very, very beginning of my career, I started out as a developer and I really enjoyed that. I still am happy that I get to write code pretty frequently. But I was working at, at Microsoft at the time, and uh, that was about the same time as we, they did the Trustworthy Computing Initiative. And that was my first introduction to security. And I really found that really exciting. And it was a different perspective than what I had thought about for my career. So then I kind of fell in love with security. I didn't fall in love with Microsoft, but that led me to become a pen tester as a consultant. And then from there, I was a consultant for a number of years. I actually shifted over to be a security trainer for two or three years, where I went and traveled all over the world and taught people about finding vulnerabilities or fixing vulnerabilities in software. And then I actually went back to building security tooling. So went back to being a developer with the focus on security. But I'd say for the last 10 or 12 years, I've been in different variations of on the leadership team. I ran the services consulting team at a security firm, and then I went on to running the engineering team. And now I run the product security team at Highspot, where, frankly, I think I get to focus on the most fun and exciting areas of security, kind of building a secure product. That's awesome. In your definition, how do you define product security? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So because it's kind of a little bit different for everybody, right? Yeah. So for us at Highspot, I think of product security as, of course, the product, the application itself but then everything that kind of funnels up or supports that. And so I have like cloud security. So I work with the DevOps team and all of the infrastructure teams. We also do a lot in Kubernetes and Docker. So getting all of that up and running and right. And then all of our integrations. And so, you know, Highspot not only builds a product, but all of our marketing websites and all of our other kind of websites have a connection and integration into the product. And so those also fall into that same category. It's almost easier to say what I don't do. Those are things like corporate security and defear and, and things like that. Those, those okay. fall different teams. Got it. Got it. So it's a broader scope than traditional application security. It has elements of cloud and infrastructure security of the modern world. How does that change your team composition or the skills that you typically hire for as compared to back in the day when you know we, we had software security people and all they did was software security? So is this now different? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's totally true. So, you know, back in the day, I think that there was a high value put on finding vulnerabilities, right? Like we wanted to go through the OWASP top 10 or the CW top 25 and, and tick those boxes and find those vulns. I definitely think that that's still super important, 
But I think that, at least for me, a big change in the last few years has been a focus on relationships and a focus on trust as a cornerstone of security. So when I think about security, we actually kind of frame that as trust more than more than security, because what we have is trust between me and the new security engineers that we bring on, right? So they have to trust me that we can execute on some sort of vision. And then as we build up our security team, I have to, or we have to build up the trust between our security team and the rest of the product team, right? So we have to be able to have this idea that we have the benefit of high spot in general in mind when we make these recommendations. We're not just finding vulnerabilities and then pushing things out and saying, hey, you have to do this or, or we're going to get owned or something. And then ultimately, once we have that, then we can build up trust between Highspot and our customers, right? So our customers have to trust us with all of their data and their, their security controls and, and things like that. They want to make sure that we are trustworthy, that we can build a product that they can feel confident in that. So kind of getting back to your original question, when I think about who I look to hire at Highspot, it's less about, as we used to think of, like mad security phone finding skills and more about, do these people have some of the soft skills to collaborate and coordinate across the entire product team? Do they have some empathy and background around development? You know, can they say like, oh, I actually know that even though this is a P1 security vulnerability, this may not be a P1 issue or thing for you to tackle because you have a whole universe of product-related tasks that you need to take on, right? Wow. So it's a, it's a little broader. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one of the challenges that we ran into in my previous life when I used to run product security team was also that when we interface with dev teams, they would say, I don't really care if it's a software bug or a container bug or even a privacy bug or a legal bug. To me, all of these things are interrelated together. So just tell me, how do I need to prioritize within that universe? You mm -hmm. can't say, well, I only focus on these things and you prioritize my bug that I reported. And the other guys will, or, you know, the other people, the other teams will tell you about the other things. So it's um, just from just, you know, incorporating that mindset of a developer where you're working on the full stack of things to you, security is one of the bucket items. And we got to have empathy to that perspective. We got to tell them, you know, help them prioritize the right things across that universe of potential issues or things. Yeah, I think you're right, though. I mean, Really, what you said is it doesn't matter, right? Like, and it's true, it doesn't matter from a security engineer's perspective, a developer's perspective, or an attacker's perspective, right? An, yeah. an attacker doesn't care if that vulnerability is in your base image or in a library or in the code you wrote. They're going to ex you know, exploit it in the same way. And so we need to think about that more holistically. Like, yeah. okay, how do we address the risk across the organization in a holistic way, not in What's the cool flashy vulnerability that we can talk about today? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that is also happening these days is because of that expanding, you know, quote unquote, attack surface. And what I mean by that is there's there's obviously the first party code that the developers are writing. There's infrastructure as code. There's third party dependencies that are being used. There's this whole technology that builds and ships the software to as an artifact to some environment somewhere. And then the artifact is deployed and there are risks associated with those things as well. 
So there's multiple places where issues and risks are being identified by the security teams or compliance teams or what have you. But then the people that do that process, that develop and deploy and maintain that process, it's the same group of people. So now as more and more developers start taking ownership of not just their code, but also the build and the deployment of it and also maintain it in runtime, it's the same individual or group of individuals. So they start seeing a very vast array of security issues, many, many security issues from multiple different things. On It's the same developer who could see a dependency issue or a secret being injected in code or container-based image-related issues or even something that reported from the bug bounty. So how do you, as security team, help that developer figure out what needs to be done? Because there's just way too much, right? How do you focus on few things that they should uh, really prioritize first. Yeah, I think there's two things there. One is getting that holistic view, right? So I think that in the early days of security, we used to think about like, okay, we're going to go do a a big scan or go do a pen test and we're going to get this PDF report that's got a bunch of volumes in it. And at the end of the day, we'll do that. We have that PDF. And then maybe we'll look at like some dependency issues and we'll say, okay, well, we should fix those. And then we have some, you know, back before Kubernetes and Docker and all this stuff, we might have like OS level vulnerabilities and we might be like managing those very, very differently. I think that to your point, when we start to think about, you know, DevOps or DevSecOps or, you know, developers getting more into the infrastructure or owning more of their stack, we have to take a more holistic approach. But the other thing that I think about a lot is I have this kind of analogy in my mind of, I call it like turning off the taps, right? So imagine, you know, you get home after dinner, you had dinner out somewhere, you come home and you open up the door and you notice that like there's water all over the floor and you're like, oh no, what do I do? And you look around and you notice that like the counter taps are overflowing. So what do you do first? Do you get the bucket and mop and start cleaning up all the water? Or you go over there and turn off the taps, right? And the answer is obvious. You go over there and you turn off those taps because once you do that, then you can clean up the water. And you have to take that same analogy with software security, right? So if you're having this constant influx, constant influx of vulnerabilities coming in, and you're like, every time we do a pen test or every time we do a scan or every time I start looking, I find new cross-site scripting vulnerabilities, new CSERF vulnerabilities, new whatever, well, guess what? Your developers need support, right? And they need some sort of enablement or awareness of those security vulnerabilities. And so how can we mitigate those from coming into the product? And then once we stop and turn off those taps, then we can go and clean up everywhere else that it might be. And, you know, that's hard because, you know, we... I think traditionally we come from a culture of find a vulnerability, fix a vulnerability. But in reality, we need to think about those themes, those themes across the, the entire product. Yeah, I think that's really critical. Yeah, I love that analogy, by the way. It's a very good framework to think about where to focus your limited efforts on. Now, let me extend that analogy a little bit because we live in this complex, dynamic world of security Instead of one tap or two taps in your kitchen, let's make it, you know, 50 taps that are all leaking because that kind of represents, you know, all kinds of different things from a security perspective that keep coming. You know, there's 
different classes of bugs, different types of issues at different layers of the stack. Some of them might be introduced by the dev. Some of them might be introduced by upstream sources of dependencies. Some of them are just hygiene, you know, that's not being followed or misconfigurations, all kinds of different things. So now that you know, okay, we got to turn the, the taps off. Obviously, ideally, you could just go outside and turn the main water supply off, but that's really not possible. You'd be stopping the business. And that would be kind of similar to just stopping to build software in the first place. Uh, you can't do that. But how do you go after, you know, which ones to focus on first? Yeah, yeah. And we might quickly get to the point where we're <laughs> pushing on this analogy too far. But, but essentially, like looking at those taps and prioritizing them, but don't like obsessively prioritize, right? So some people get into this kind of analysis paralysis of like, okay, what's the most important thing that I can do right now? I think that prioritization is really important, but execution trumps prioritization, right? Like at the end of the day, getting stuff done is what matters. And so what I would say is like, take stock of all of the different taps, identify what your top three are, top four are, what are your biggest security areas of, of risk? And then go over and solve one of them, right? Like really, truly fix it, right? If it's a supply chain issue, if it's a, you know, a dependency issue, if it's a certain vulnerability class like CSERF or cross-site scripting, or if it's a base image issue, whatever those issues might be, pick one spend real time on it, focus on that, and then solve it and put it behind you. And I think that's really important because we tend, as security people, we see risk everywhere, right? Like just everywhere you go, everywhere you look, in every, everything, you see risk. And what we want to do is mitigate all of that risk. It's really hard to temporarily accept risk. But in order to get anything done, we have to accept you know, all of the other risks that we're not going to focus on in order to really solve one of the challenges. Because without that, you know, you're just going to be kind of spreading yourself way, way, way too thin. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I 100% agree. It's uh, addressing a certain class of bugs, focusing on it. And it also becomes a rallying point for the rest of the organization. Now they have a clear vision of what needs to happen in the immediate future rather than just going into an analysis paralysis. Have you seen any particular ways of making such initiatives more successful? Let's just say you pick a class of bugs that you want to solve and have everyone focus on it. What do you do once you and your team decide, okay, let's go after this? How do you approach it? Again, this kind of comes back to coordination and collaboration, but we did this a couple of years ago with, with cross-site scripting. So this is kind of a good example. So, you know, cross-site scripting is, is one of those vulnerabilities that's been around for a long time. I remember finding cross-site scripting in a Barnes & Noble website 20 years ago, right? And it's still around. But we have much, much better tooling now. And so kind of for us, step one was analysis of the problem, right? And as a consultant, you find a cross-site scripting vulnerability and you say, you know what, you need to do input validation, output encoding, right? And everybody says that and it's like so fast that everybody knows exactly what to do. But in reality, it's a lot harder than that, right? Like one, I don't know if input validation makes a lot of sense in a lot of context. And then output encoding, I guess, as long as you don't ever want to output, you know, something like HTML, or if you accept markdown, like all of a sudden this is a 
complex problem. And so step one is analysis. Like, why are we getting these cross-site scripting vulnerabilities and in what context? And what do we have to support? And then how do we solve it, right? So building out, in our case, you know, we wanted to build out two very clear remediation paths. One was how do we handle things that should not have HTML in them? So like a username, right? So, okay, encode that one. And then how do we handle things that should have HTML in them? And in that case, it was all about using a library called DOM Purify, right? And so you send in all of this crazy, malicious, whatever into DOM Purify, it loads into the DOM, it strips out everything that's bad, and then gives you a presentable piece of HTML. And that's really important for a company like Highspot. A lot of what we do is like has WYSIWYG editors or Markdown or different things where we're handling potential input vectors. Well, in those situations, like try to input validate something that could literally have anything in it. Well, that's going to be really impossible. But treating those things very clearly, you know, here are your two paths, developer, does it require HTML or not? And then making that really clear. And then the last piece is that advocacy, right? So, okay, we've built out the tooling and now we need for every single person who's writing anything to do with the front end to know exactly what to do every single time. And if they make a mistake, that's totally fine. Everybody makes mistakes. But then saying, oh, okay, look at this. Here are your two choices, right? You could have chosen A or B. You chose A and it should have been B. And that led us to this. Yeah. Um, super clear. So how did you take that next step of, let's say you decided, okay, we should use DOM Verify and this is how we should do it. Now I'm guessing that decision would have been made with involvement from security and maybe some key decision maker, somebody senior from the engineering side or what have you. But then when you want to distribute that knowledge to the rest of the front-end team, and I'm guessing many front-end engineers across many different teams, how do you actually communicate that? How do you enforce it, quote-unquote enforce it, or flag it when there's you know violation of that sort of agreement in a way? Yeah, yeah, so that's a good question. And it's going to be different for every org. For Highspot, we have a few touch points. So early on, we collaborated with a couple of the senior and principal developers over on the, the front end team. And they were like, yeah, like, you know, essentially they were as tired of getting hit by these cross-site scripting vulnerabilities as we were of finding them, right? So I said, okay, we both want to collaborate on this. And so it was a lot of like, from a security perspective, how can we make sure that we're meeting the security needs? And from a development perspective, making sure that they knew all of the different ins and outs of how this was going to be used. And then once we had a solution, then it was all about that education and delivery. And so at High Spot, we have a few different things. So one is every person goes through a, an onboarding, a couple of days of onboarding, and then they go on to a couple of days of engineering onboarding. And so the security team does a couple of talks early on, you know, how to interact with security and then some common vulnerabilities and medications that we've designed. So everybody gets that kind of baseline, every single developer. And then we do a weekly engineering sync, which is just kind of like an opportunity for all the engineers to get together and share best practices. And so I end up speaking at the engineering sync often because I come up with other security ideas or want to announce something. And then like many companies, you know, October is um, National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And so at Highspot, we hijack the entire month and do external security talks and internal security talks. We do a bunch of stuff. Like last year, we did talks on like 
lock picking and, and all kinds of fun stuff. So it's an opportunity to really rally and say, okay, what did we learn this year? And what do we want to tackle next year? And that's kind of our cornerstone is that Hacktoberfest. That's awesome. Did you see any results trickle through after those things subsequently that those classes of bugs getting uh, reduced in volume? Yeah, yeah. So one of my cornerstones for thinking about security at scale is I have three things, right? Security awareness, security enablement, and security detection. Awareness is all about just making sure that people know that the security team exists at all, know when they can raise their hand and what kind of problems we can solve for them when they might want to involve us, and that, you know all the right channels to go communicate to the security team. Security enablement is all about helping developers go fast, right? So I want them to be able to build software at the current speed that they want to build at, except fall into a pit of success, right? Like every time I want them to be able to make good security decisions with either the tooling that they have at their fingertips, good defaults and good libraries, good frameworks and things like that. And then finally, you know, detection. Of course, people are going to make mistakes. And that's, you know, we were very hardcore about not being a blame-focused sort of security team Mistakes are part of the game. We're all people until we get replaced by ChatGPT or something, I guess. But, you know, mistakes happen. And how do we handle those? How do we have that culture of like, okay, yeah, you made a mistake. We, uh, security vulnerability was found by the security team because of, you know, all of our other internal things. And then how do we fix that? And how do we fix it quickly and make sure that we have the tooling? So let's tie it together. So we, we started the conversation by identifying classes of bugs or categories or themes that we want to start, us, you know, start getting remediated. Now, if you bring it back to detections, do you also connect those loops? So you gave an example of XSS issues. Did you implement any specific detections for that particular category of issues? Yeah, yeah. So we have a couple of bits of tooling in the build pipeline that do detection. I mean, I'm really happy and really excited about this kind of renaissance of static analysis. You know, tools like like SEMgrep and Bearer are amazing, right? Like they're doing so much better. I remember for so long that like SAST was just like a false positive generator, right? Like it was just a, something ridiculous and it sucked so bad. And now, you know, we can actually use these tools to build them and tune them so that they give us good signal. And then we can build rules around that so that, you know, if we see a common vulnerability pattern, we can be alerted of that. And so we do get tagged on a number of different code reviews for like high security sensitive sorts of things. But more frequently, it's like, oh, this rule fired in the build pipeline and I want to go take a look at that. And, you know, sometimes it's just somebody making a mistake. Sometimes it's that our rule isn't tuned properly. Uh, maybe it's overly aggressive. Maybe something else has changed. But yeah, that kind of awareness and alerting is, is really helpful. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So you see through that entire life cycle of not just remediating the existing known issues. There might be unknowns, but not just remediating the known ones, but also putting in measures in place so you you stop that leak from that water faucet. Yeah, we do. We also have a bit of tooling that helps us find those themes and those correlations. And so I wrote a tool internally that 
essentially lets us funnel in all of our open source reports and things. So uh, all the different serif and JSON formats and CSVs and everything else goes into this one tool and then gives us a holistic view of all of the issues and then can pull things in by theme and say, okay, well, how are we doing on cross-site scripting? How are we doing on SQL injection? Because then we don't do that. But yeah, like those kinds of themes and categories end up bubbling up and then we know what to tackle next. You know, So yeah. we might say, okay, C-Surf is next or, or whatever. It sounds like you're pitching Tromso. That's exactly what we do. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, keeping that aside, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's um, focusing on specific themes, building it for the longer terms, you're preventing reintroduction of those issues. Does that help you distribute some of this knowledge of security in a more effective way going beyond the training? Or do you feel like that end-to-end lifecycle is still within the security team itself? Yeah, it's hard because, again, kind of coming back to the trust, right? So if I say, and I roll out like, let's say that I roll out 20 hours of security training, right? And, and it's all the best security training in the world. I would say that most of the developers would love to take all that training, right? They would, they would love to, but they're constantly needing to balance against a million other pressures, right? They need to deliver you know, high quality code to our customers. And that is super important. So if I say you should do this 20 hours of security training, instead of 20 hours of feature development work, that's probably not the right call. I'm not going to take the entire development team offline for a bunch of days just to do this training. And then do I have any guarantees that this is actually going to solve any problems anyway? And so kind of getting back to secure defaults, secure libraries, good secure choices, that paved path of security is super critical. And then when we're going to tackle something, right? So when we're going to tackle one of these themes, when something kind of bubbles up to the, to the top, then kind of surgically pulling together a team that can tackle these things and, and then we can solve it for the entire org. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So when you think about taking that approach, driving remediation, but really building these guardrails and protection in place, so, so you're, you're preventing... As much as possible, you're preventing mistakes or accidental misconfigurations and things like that within the process itself. How do you play out the future? If you want to take the crystal ball, if you want to take a stab at it, do you see any positive things for the industry, that are, for our AppSec software security industry, product security industry that, that you're excited about? Any things that you're looking forward to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's kind of nice about being in the security industry for 20 plus years is that you see a lot of things that have stayed the same and a lot of things that have changed. And you know, naturally, there will always be that arms race right between security defenders and, and offensive folks. And I always I think that tension is is really, really, really good. Of course, we don't know the future, but like better secure defaults, better paved paths, I think are going to be critical. I remember having this conversation with some friends you know, five, 10 plus years ago about like, if we had a magic wand, what would we do in order to solve, like have the biggest impact in security? And a lot of that was around secure defaults and secure libraries and frameworks. And it's, you know, it's great to see that kind of coming to fruition. Like, you know, if you use React properly, you don't have to worry about cross-site scripting as much. I'd like to see that further. The easy answer, I think everybody's going to be thinking about right now is just AI support. You know, I'm actually really 
a big advocate of things like, you know, Copilot and ChatGPT. I think they're really valuable. I think the next step is letting a system like that build some of the code and then sending it into another AI system to be adversarial, right? So take that code and then funnel it into ChatGPT and say, are there any issues, right? Do you see any vulnerabilities in there? Or what are the key lines of code that I should really read and really understand? I think that kind of adversarial relationship between two AI systems could be pretty cool. And then obviously, you know, into the future, into the next three to five years, obviously the adversaries are going to have the same types of tools at their fingertips, right? So I'm seeing a lot of really interesting AI analysis around just like throwing a binary at some of these AI systems and saying like, find a buffer overflow. And they do a pretty decent job of it, which is pretty cool, a little scary, but I think that if we can solve the basics through defaults, paved paths, et cetera, and then use you know, these AI systems to increase productivity and potentially security, I think that's kind of where we're going to be yeah. going. Yeah, I'm usually a big skeptic of terminologies being used by especially product vendors. You know, a lot of it used to be snake oil, but I mean, I think nowadays with the newer large language models, I think there's just there's a transformational effect that it can have if it is used correctly. I think, uh, as you said, you know, if it increases productivity, at the end of the day, technology has to be used for a very specific purpose to be able to help us, right? So, and uh, and in our case, where we are translating a lot of complex systemic knowledge of cybersecurity into a developer-friendly, you know, language, that could be a good way of automating a lot of what we do today, whether it's understanding code and identifying abuse cases uh, and sending it back to whoever is writing the code system or human, or even translating what we understand in security into more actionable things for developers. That's got a huge potential. To- yeah, or just creating test cases or adversarial, uh, you know, concepts. Like, I think that's really important just to, because sometimes one of the most important things that a security person can do for a developer is just ask, you know, did you think of this? Or, you know, what if that happens or whatever? And, you know, I always joke, like, if I ever get to the point where we've solved all the security things, I'll be happy to retire. It's going to be a long time before that happens. But maybe, (laughs) maybe Copilot will be it. Yeah, then you'll be focused on security off Copilot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Awesome. Joe, this was a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I truly appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.